please turn your Bibles to Romans 2, Romans chapter 2. We will read, starting in chapter 2, I will read through verse 16, but we were, like I said, we're only going to really focus on the first five verses. So Romans chapter 2. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, on the Jew first and also to, of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. We'll stop there. So as we come to Romans chapter 2, remember we're still in that first major section of Paul's letter to the Romans where he is going through the, uh, he's describing the unrighteousness or the righteousness of God being revealed in his judgment against sinners in general. And that section begins in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 18, like we saw last week, and continues all the way until chapter 3, verse 20. And like I said, this section is dealing with the revelation of God's wrath, not wreath, it should be wrath, I have wreath there, uh, uh, against sinners. So this section flows out of his purpose statement found in Romans 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, which is the theme of Romans, as I've been saying all along here, where Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the gospel, as we've been saying all along, is a revelation. It is the revelation of God's righteousness. And that righteousness is first revealed in his wrath against sinners. So God's righteousness is revealed as he judges the sins of mankind. And as we said last time, the good news is only good when we realize how bad the bad news really is. And that's what Romans 1.18 through 3.20 is setting out to show us. It is a graphic illustration of just how bad the bad news is. 
So don't be despairing at the end of this lesson when it still feels like we're in a pit of bad news. Because the good news is coming, and we're going to get there. But again, we need to see how bad things are in order to understand just how good the good news is. God is righteous in that he righteously judges sin. Now, in the case of the Gentiles, like we looked at last week in Romans chapter 1, the last half of that chapter, uh, the case of the Gentiles, that righteous wrath is being revealed even now. That's what he says in verse 18. The, the wrath of God is being revealed. That's a present tense verb. It is right now being revealed, and it's being revealed in how God hands over the Gentiles to their sin. They, can, they sin, they rebel against their creator, they fail to acknowledge God as the creator, they fail to glorify him and, and worship him as God, they fail to see God in the creation. So what God does is he hands them over to their sin. God's restraining hand, his common grace, we talked about this last week, his common grace restrains the sinful impulses of human nature so that you have a, a somewhat ordered society. You have unbelievers who still know, at least instinctively, what is right and what is wrong. So just because you're an unbeliever does not mean that you are as wicked as you can be. There are some unbelievers in this world that are actually probably more moral than some Christians are. But the point is, is that's God's common grace, his hand of restraint on the sinful impulses of mankind to, in order to provide a sort of a gracious, um, well-being, kind of a beneficent uh, action towards mankind to allow them to have an ordered society, to allow them to live, to allow them to receive the general blessings that God gives in his common grace, the rains, the sun, you know, everything like that. So as we saw last week, that downward spiral as the Gentile sinner who rejects the sure knowledge of God that he or she has, and that rejection of God and his truth then leads to a devolution. We saw that devolution. So they know God, they reject God, so what do they do? They have to replace God with idols. Man was created to worship. And if we don't worship and serve the creator, we're going to worship and serve the creation and the created order. And that's what happens. So rejecting God, they become they, they, they start worshiping idols. Then that devolution continues as you see, in, uh, you see mankind engaging in homosexuality. That was the second section we looked at. And then that last section is just a laundry list of all kinds of sins and wickedness that mankind expresses through his sinful nature. And this righteous wrath then of God is being revealed as God is handing them over to the full weight of their sin. So in other words, you know, you, you're going to reject me. Okay, fine. Then live in, you know, live in the bed that you've made. That's kind of what's going on here. You're just kind of letting them go and letting them feel the full weight and consequences of their sin. So that's the revelation of God's wrath against the Gentiles. Now, what about the Jews? Because remember in verse 17 of chapter 1, he says that this is a, the, the gospel is a revelation of God's righteousness to the Jew first, but also to the Greek or the Gentiles. So what about the Jews? We Chapter 1 talks about God's wrath being revealed against the Gentiles. Is God's wrath being revealed against the Jews? And before we get into uh, Romans 2, 1 through 5 proper, we need to understand a few things about how the Jews of Jesus and Paul's day viewed themselves in relation to the Gentiles. Now, the Jews of Jesus and Paul's day 
essentially fell into four broad categories or four groupings of, of uh, beliefs and, and insights and, and practices. The first one you see there on your list should be the Sadducees. Now, you see these people in the Gospels, you know, Jesus talks to the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and all these people, the lawyers, the, the experts in the law. The Sadducees were sort of like a quasi-political religious grouping. They were a group of people who would be considered sort of like the religious and political liberals of their day. They came from primarily wealthy and powerful families, and they enjoyed sort of hobnobbing and rubbing elbows with the, the, the rich and famous. Okay, They were stationed mostly in Jerusalem, and they were in the halls of power. They, were, they comprised the majority of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish sort of like ruling council of the day. They essentially only held to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, as canon. So anything outside of the, the Pentateuch, anything outside of the books of Moses, the, the Sadducees didn't really see as scripture. And as such, then they rejected a belief in a bodily resurrection of the dead. They did not believe there was a resurrection of the dead, which is why in one of those encounters that Jesus has with them, the Sadducees come up to him and he, they pose like a riddle. You know, in other words, like, okay, you believe in the resurrection. Okay, let me pose a riddle to you. And, he, and the Sadducees go up to Jesus and say, suppose there's a man who has a wife, okay? And the man dies, so his brother marries her. And then he dies, and then his, the next brother in line, and it goes through all seven brothers, and then finally the, the wife dies. And, the, and then the Sadducees says, okay, now in the resurrection, whose wife is she? Okay, Jesus, we caught you, we got you. How are you going to answer this one? And Jesus turns and says to him, and says, well, you really don't know what marriage is about, and you don't know anything about the resurrection. Because in the resurrection, he says, there's neither giving in marriage or being married. And he says, and of course, God, he says, is a God of the living, not of the dead. Because God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. And not, I was their God, because they're dead now, but they're living now. So they did not believe in the resurrection. They, they, they did not have a, they sort of rejected this sort of concept of the supernatural in, in essence. Well, the second group of Jewish people were the Essenes. The Essenes. These people were sort of like the Jewish separatists of their day. They were the people who like, were like, let's say like monks in the medieval times. They didn't want to bother with city dwellers and city worship. So they would sort of extract themselves from society and live in the wilderness. In fact, it was the Essenes. If you know, uh, back in the 1940s, the mid-1940s, you had the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those Dead Sea Scrolls were found in a cave near Qumran in, in the Middle East there. It was believed that there was an Essene community that preserved these scrolls in these jars, and, and it was their scriptures that they had that out in the wilderness there. So these Essenes were Jewish separatists. They lived in communes outside of the major population centers. They were obsessed with purity. They were, it was said that they dressed all in white and avoided sacrificing at the temple because they believed the temple was defiled because of the priesthood that was there. So they, they thought themselves so pure, they didn't even want to mingle with the, the city religious folks. They didn't want to mingle with the priests of the city. And they were strict Sabbatarians. In fact, they were so strict in their Sabbath worship where it says in the law of God that if a, 
if your ox or your donkey falls into a ditch, you're allowed on the Sabbath to at least help it out of the ditch. You don't have to leave it there for the whole day. Well, the Essenes said, no, no, that's a violation of the Sabbath, too. We're very strict on worshiping in the Sabbath. The third group were the Zealots. And as probably you might guess by the name, the Zealots, these were the revolutionaries of their day. They were the people who so despised Roman rule that they wanted to sort of strike out and and attack the Romans in sort of like a you know guerrilla technique that you see uh, when when an occupied people are are there and they want to sort of overthrow their occupiers. They were the revolutionaries. In fact, one of the uh, one of the disciples of Jesus was a a Simon the Zealot. So, so you had, which is an interesting group because you had in the in the disciples you had Matthew, who was a Jewish tax collector. You know he, in other words, he was one. The tax collectors were people who were sort of working for Rome, collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire. Then you had a zealot, one who hated the Romans so much. And you had these two, two of these two people would, if they met in the street in real life, would probably kill one another. But now here they are in, in Jesus' disciples. But the zealots were sort of the, the revolutionaries. In fact, you even read in the book of Acts how um, there were several groups of these. It's, I think it's in Acts chapter 4 when... Peter and John are there before the, the Sanhedrin for healing the, the lame guy outside of the temple in Acts chapter 3. They're brought before them, and the, 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 the Sanhedrin says, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And, of course, Peter and John say, we can't. <laughs> we, you, know, you, you, you know, you could tell us to do a lot of things, but we're not going to stop preaching in the name of Jesus because that's what we are. You know, we believe Jesus is the Messiah who has returned and we, we will preach his name. You can't tell us that. You know, you can tell us that and we're going to reject you. And then as they leave, then one of the Jewish officials says, just let him go because if it's of God, there's nothing we can do to stop it. But if it's not of God, then, you know, it'll die out. And, and then he lists like several others. He says, remember so-and-so when he led the revolution here and so-and-so when he led the revolution there. And then once we took care of the leaders, the, the movement died out. So, you know, it was Gamaliel who said, you know, if this is of God, there's nothing we can do to stop it. But if not, it will die out. So these are the zealots. The last group there is the Pharisees, a very well-known group of, of, of Jewish people uh, if any, for anybody who's ever read the scriptures at all. Uh, these would be the political and religious conservatives of the day. Uh, they were interested in shaping Jewish religious life according to their own traditions. So whenever you see Jesus sort of talking about you follow the traditions of men, he's referring to this, the Pharisees. They had their own way. You know, it's, it's not enough that you had the law of God. But then the Pharisees added a law unto that in order to observe the law of God. So it's like, okay, here's God's law. Now, in order to observe God's law, we're going to pile on all of these extra rules and regulations in order to follow God's law. Now, while there, there, there were three um, sort of traditions within the Pharisaical line, there were, it was fa- mainly following three famous rabbis. Uh, the, the, the three rabbis are Shammai, Hillel, and Gamaliel. I mentioned Gamaliel. He, he's actually mentioned in Acts 4 and in Acts 22. Gamaliel was the one who instructed Paul. It says in Acts 22.3, Paul studied at the feet of Gamaliel. Um, so there were differences between these three schools and how they interpreted the law. But as a whole, they were more conservative than the Sadducees. 
And of course, they were fastidious in their observance of the law and particularly to the Sabbath and its purity codes. And of course, like I said, Paul himself was a Pharisee of the Gamaliel school. And it's actually believed that of all these four groups of Jewish uh, society, it was the Pharisees that survived. And modern Judaism today is sort of kind of comes out of that Pharisaical line. The, others, the other three groups were either exterminated during the Roman uh, invasion of AD 70 when they came and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Uh, or they just died out in the wilderness. I mean, the zealots probably would have been executed. The Essenes being removed would have eventually died out in themselves. It was the Pharisees who sort of were not just located in Jerusalem, but sort of located all throughout the region. They're the ones that survived. And modern-day Judaism is, is sort of kind of comes out of that Pharisaical tradition. So now the Jews of Jesus in Paul's day still had a strong sense of national identity. And they took pride in their Jewishness. It didn't matter that they were an occupied nation. It didn't matter that they weren't in charge of their own political destiny and hadn't been so for over 600 years. They still had a strong national identity. They had a very strong us versus them mentality. In fact, consider some passages here. In Matthew 3, 9. In Matthew 3, you have the ministry of John the Baptist as he is proclaiming uh, out in the wilderness and he's baptizing people, preparing them for the coming of the Messiah. And in Matthew 3, 9, uh, as the, you know, the Pharisees come up to, to, to John and they're wondering what he's doing, and John rebukes them. He says, oh, well, the, the Pharisees say to him, we have, well, no, sorry, John says to them, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones here to raise up children of Abraham. The point being that they took such a pride in their national identity, they didn't feel they needed to come to John to receive this baptism of purification. And John's saying, don't take pride in your identity. Don't take pride in the fact that you are a son of Abraham. Because that's nothing special. If God wanted to, he can raise sons of Abraham from the very stones that you see here on the ground. So don't think that you can avoid what's coming. In John chapter 8, verse 33, as, John, or as Jesus tells the Jews, the Pharisees, he says that uh, in me you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, the Pharisees didn't take too kindly to that because in John 8, 33, it is said that they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How ironic is that? <laughs> but we'll, we'll come back to that. We have never been enslaved by anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? So just those two verses by themselves, you can see that the Jews of Jesus and Paul's day had a very, very strong, even to that day, very, very strong sense of their identity and a very, very strong sense of we're the chosen people. All you other people out there, you're, you know, it's sad to be you, but, you know, we're the chosen people. They believe because they were children of Abraham that they were somehow exempt from the judgment of God. In fact, in one of the apocryphal books, The Wisdom of Solomon, it is written in there that it says that God will judge the wicked, but he will sort of wink at, at us, the Jews, because we're his children. We're sort of exempt from God's wrath. We're exempt from his judgment. 
Now, it's interesting, like I said, that comment that they had never been enslaved to anyone was sort of patently observed, seeing as how they were enslaved by the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. I mean, 600 years of servitude, 600 years of being under the, 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 you know, the control of foreign powers. You know, and they're sitting here, we've never been enslaved by anybody. It's like, okay, whatever. So because of all this, there's a sense in which the Jews believed that God would sort of go easy on them because they were his chosen people. Now, the Gentiles, of course, were certainly subject to God's wrath, but not his people, right? This is important for under, as we move into Romans chapter 2 because all of this, and we'll get into it in a little bit, but all of this, I believe, is talking about Jews, okay? Uh, the, in fact, all of chapter 2 and into verse 8 of chapter 3 Paul is addressing the sins of the Jewish people. Now, as you recall, a couple of weeks ago, uh, when I said that there was some controversy regarding to whom Paul is referring in chapter 2, some see Paul talking about Jews, like I said, all the way through into chapter 3. But some see verses 1 through 16 as referring to a sort of a moralist or a moral person of unspecified nationality. And then as verses 17 through 29, then he goes on to the Jews. So you've got, you know, essentially Paul's dealing with three groups of people. Then you've got Gentiles who are wicked. Then you've got sort of just, you know, moral people. And then you've got Jewish people. Now, what's the right answer and why does it matter? Well, let's start with the why does it matter question. I think in order, in order to properly understand Paul's argument in Romans 1 through 3, we need to know to whom Paul is referring. We need to know who he's addressing in each section as he goes from, from you know, chapter 1 to chapter 2 to chapter 3. And again, the thrust of this section of Romans is, again, like we have been saying all along, the revelation of God's righteousness in his wrath against sinners. Because at the end of Romans 3, Paul is going to conclude, as he concludes the section and goes on, to present the good news. And in Romans 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 20, he says, For all have sinned, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. And this all suggests that Paul is speaking of Jews and Gentiles. That includes everybody. If you talk, you know, to the Jewish mind again, there's Jews and Gentiles, and Gentiles includes anyone who's not Jewish. So it's like A and not A. That, that is everybody, Right? Now, while it is possible that we could divide humanity to many more categories, again, from the Jewish point of view, there's only Jew and Gentile. So then what's the right answer? If that's why it matters, what's the right answer? And the answer is, I don't know with 100% certainty. You guys okay with that? That that there's something I cannot proclaim with 100% certainty? It seems that the majority of commentators take the view that Paul is speaking of Jews all throughout Romans 2 and into Romans 3, but it is by no means conclusive. There are, there are differing opinions. But one thing that convinces me, it is interesting, all throughout chapter 1, when Paul is talking about the sins of the Gentiles, he refers to them in the third person. They, them, things like that. They will see this. They, God turns them over. God hands them over. He's, you know, he's, he's speaking to somebody, and he's then talking about a third group of people. It's like, You know, God's going to hand them over. God is going to rebuke them. You know, they will face God's wrath. But then in verse in chapter two, 
Paul switches to the second person singular, you. Now let's talk about you. Okay, we've talked about them. Let's talk about you. And that you, again, like I said, is singular. If it were plural, you might presume that Paul is talking to the Romans, his, his readers, as the, the people he is addressing in his letter. But he's not. He's talking to a sort of an imaginary opponent. Okay, if you remember way back in the first lesson, we talked about uh, one of the rhetorical devices that Paul uses throughout Romans is the rhetorical device of the diatribe, the diatribe in which he um, imagines an imaginary opponent, an interlocutor who he is referring to. And he's sort of like the foil in, in a lot of these things. And, and here he's now using this in chapter two. He says, OK, now let's talk about you, O man. Therefore, you are an excusable O man in, in Romans 2.1. This is that he's using that, that, that form of rhetorical device. He's engaging with an imaginary opponent. Not that Paul is talking to like his imaginary friend. Don't think he's like got voices in his head. But he's using this as a rhetorical device to get a point across. And the point that Paul wants to make in this section in Romans 2 is that the Jews are no less exempt from the judgment of God than their Gentile neighbors. That's the point he's going to get throughout Romans chapter 2. And then with that, let's go into Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Now note what Paul says here in verse 1. He says, therefore, you are inexcusable. You have no excuse. This is what he told the Gentiles in, in chapter 1, verse 20. Therefore, you, have, you, you are without excuse. You reject God, but God has made himself plainly clear to you. He has revealed himself to you. So you have no excuse for rejecting God. And now he's turning the tables onto the Jew. He's like, you also have no excuse. Because what does he say? Oh man, whoever you, uh, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. The Jew would look at the wanton debauchery of chapter 1 and concur with Paul that these people are worthy of wrath. They are irredeemable heathens and vile sinners. So you can almost imagine Paul talking about the Gentiles and the Jewish guy sitting next to him says, yes, Paul, preach it, brother. Yes, they are sinners. God, hand them over. May they all die and may we all, then the Messiah will come and we will have our kingdom and all this wonderful stuff. And then Paul says, now you. <laughs> the light is now turning and we're going to shine it on you, O oh man. Paul now turns the tables on his Jewish opponent and says to him, when you pass judgment on others, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you do the very same things. To which Paul's opponent might say, preposterous. How dare you? I'm not like those people in chapter one. I don't do those things. Now just think about it for a moment. We see all kinds of evil being perpetrated in the world around us and we rightly condemn it, Right? You can look at the riots in any of these cities and you could look at the senseless murders that happen in major cities as gangs kill people in their own community. You've got all this wanton violence and we look at it and we rightly condemn it. This is wrong. But we need to be careful in passing judgment on another, right? That's what Jesus says to the gathered, gathered group of people that come to listen to him when he preaches on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 1 where he says, judge not lest you be judged. 
For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then he goes on to tell the people the parable. The parable of the, you know, says, you, you know, if you go up to your brother and you see that he's got a speck in his eye and you're sitting there, you're obsessing over the speck in his eye. And you're like, dude, you've got a speck in your eye. And then he turns around and says to you, it's like, well, do you not see the massive log jutting out of your own eye? It's like, why are you worried about my speck? Why don't you take care of your log? And then I'll worry, we can worry about my speck because I think your log is a much bigger problem. It's easy to pass judgment on others, but much harder to see things that we do as worthy of judgment. We often want others to get justice, right? We look at the sins and wickedness in the world and we want God's judgment on that. And then when it comes to our own sins, well, we want God's grace and mercy, right? It's like, please excuse my sins, O Lord, but please, will you, you know, get rid of those bad people over there? We want others to get justice, but we want grace for ourselves. Turn with me, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children, he ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. And he goes on. We can go back to Romans. That's the problem, right? I mean, the idea here is that David was so righteously indignant over the story that Nathan told him. And then when he found out that he was the man, he was like, oh, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, yeah, oh, that was bad, wasn't it? That's what Paul's getting at here in Romans chapter 2. He says, you who judge others, you are guilty of the same thing. So then Paul goes on to say in verses 2 and 3, But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? So Paul's Jewish opponent agrees with everyone in condemning those in chapter 1, that the wrath of God rightfully falls upon them. But the problem is that it's not enough to condemn the sins of others, right? One must also condemn sins in ourselves, in our own hearts. And Paul here is contradicting the whole Jewish notion that God will overlook the sins of his, cho of his chosen people, but will punish the, with righteous judgment the sins of the Gentiles. Furthermore, he's also poking a hole in the balloon of their self-righteousness. 
Again, note that those who condemn such actions yet practice such things themselves will not escape judgment. Again, going back to that story with David and Nathan. Recall Jesus' dismantling of the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, again in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says that in, in chapter 5, verse 20 of Matthew, he says you have to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. Now, to the Jewish hearing, they thought the Pharisees were the most righteous people around. They were the ones who followed all the laws. They were the ones who, who shook their fingers at us when we didn't follow the law. And Jesus says, you have to have a righteousness that exceeds theirs. And they're like, whoa, that's a high standard to me. But what is Jesus really saying? He's saying that the Pharisees have a self-righteousness. You need to have a righteousness that is beyond a self-righteousness. In other words, you need to have a righteousness, as Paul will say in Philippians, that doesn't come from the law, that doesn't come from yourself, but comes from faith in Christ. So after saying that you need a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, he goes on to destroy the righteousness of the Pharisees by exposing their superficial understanding of the law. Several times then in chapter 5, as he, as he closes chapter 5, Jesus will say, you have heard it said by the Pharisees, by the laws, you know, by the scribes and the Pharisees, such and such. And then Jesus will say, but I say unto you. He says that several times. In other words, what the Pharisees have taught you is wrong. Let me, let me correct that false thinking. Paul is attacking the Jewish understanding of the law and sin. The Jews aren't ex- exempt from God's judgment just because they're Jews. And they're also not exempt because they don't commit overt acts of wickedness. If you remember in Isaiah 6, when the prophet is, you know, this is, it's often referred to as Isaiah's commissioning, is when God calls Isaiah to be a prophet. And it, it starts off, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. So Isaiah is in the temple, and in the year that King Uzziah died, he gets a vision of the real king, right? He gets a vision of the exalted Lord on his throne, high and lifted up, and he sees the angelic choir singing, uh, pronouncing the holiness of the Lord. And in Tiffany, of course, they, they're announcing one to another, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, whose glory fills the earth. And then after that, Isaiah gets that glimpse just a teeny tiny glimpse of the glory of God, what does Isaiah say to himself? He doesn't say, what an amazing light show. Let's do this again. Can, we, can I come back and see this movie? No, he says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Caught a glimpse of the glory of God, and he then, Isaiah, for the first time in his life, saw who Isaiah truly was. He saw himself as a vile, wretched sinner. Now, Isaiah was a morally righteous, upright man who walked in the ways of the Lord, yet when he saw himself compared to the glory of God, Isaiah saw himself for what he truly was a vile, wretched sinner who had unclean lips. It's interesting that he focuses on the mouth because Isaiah would then be a spokesman for God. He recognized, I cannot be a prophet of God because my mouth, my lips, my tongue are unclean. So now we come to verse 4. Verse 4 where Paul writes, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Repentance. 
Here's the heart of the Jewish sin, the presumption of the kindness and forbearance of God. The Jews thought that the kindness and forbearance of God was because they were his chosen people. God was kind to them because they were the people that he chose. Problem was, in reality, God's kindness and forbearance had a specific purpose in mind, and that was to lead them to repentance. Okay? To lead them to repentance. God was not overlooking their sin because he winks at the sin of his people. It's like, well, don't worry about it. You know, you guys, you're okay. You're my children. It's all right. It's all right. No. He was overlooking their sin because it was meant to motivate them to repentance. God is kind, yes, because there is people, but he still punishes sin and rewards obedience. A self-righteous person thinks God is pleased with him or her because he or she is not currently facing the wrath of God. And that's what's happening here. They were thinking, well, I'm not facing, I mean, look, the, the Gentiles are receiving God's wrath. I'm not facing any wrath. I must be doing all right. Now, husbands, okay, or if you're not married, if you have a girlfriend, if you ever notice and you go up to your wife or your significant other and you ask her, hey, honey, is anything wrong? And she says, no, nothing's wrong. Do you honestly believe that nothing is wrong? (laughs) Silence in the house, peace in the house. Does that mean that nothing is wrong? Okay, (laughs) that's the idea here. God is not currently raining wrath down in the Jews, that doesn't mean nothing is wrong. It means that he's withholding his wrath because he's gracious and he's kind, but it's meant to lead to repentance. So then in verse 5, Paul says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, that word hardness is interesting. We get the word sclerosis or hardening, from it, it's, that's the word there. Your, your heart is hardening. <laughs> it's becoming sclerotic, okay? Because of the hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up, or some other translations will say, storing up for yourself wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So Paul's verbal sparring partner here does not have a soft heart, but a hard and impenitent heart. And because of that, the Jew is treasuring up wrath. Just like Jesus says, do not treasure up treasures in, on earth where moth and rust and thieves will come in and steal and destroy. But treasure, you know, put your treasures up in heaven. Store up your treasures in heaven. Well, here the Jews are storing up or treasuring up wrath. Why? Because they're unrepentant. Because their hearts are hard. Because God is kind to them, but they refuse to repent of their sin. That's a frightening image. Now, when we were, my wife and I were living back in Illinois, we would have some strong spring rains. And there was a, uh, in fact, they would be so heavy at times that we would get flash flood warnings if if they were so strong over a period, a short period of time. And one spring, I remember this particularly well, uh, there was a nearby river and we had so much rain in a very short period of time that that river overflowed. I mean, it overflowed to the point where it shut down every major east-west street uh, in, our, in our general area. Well, the same thing is being described here. God's wrath is being held back by the dam of his kindness and forbearance. But as Paul says, a day, of, uh, a day is coming, a day of wrath, when that dam will burst and God's wrath will be revealed. It says the revelation of his righteous judgment. Again, remember I said the, the concept of revelation 
is, is key to understanding Romans 1 through 3. And here is that word again, that revelation. God's wrath, it was hidden. It was hidden because he was kind and patient. But now it's being revealed. It will be revealed one day on that day of wrath. Part of that revelation occurs with the righteous judgment of sinners. For Gentiles, that righteous judgment is being revealed today as God hands them over to the wicked, uh, hands the wicked over to the downward spiral of sin and misery. But for the Jew, that righteous judgment is currently hidden, it is being stored up, but it will be revealed, it will become manifest and visible in the day of wrath. Now, Again, I, I can't express enough how frightening this image is of this storing up of wrath. I mean, most people here, I would imagine from time to time, maybe you lose your temper, you get angry, you, something happens, you just can't take it anymore, you kind of lash out. Me, I don't tend to uh, hold grudges or bury my anger. When I get mad, you will know it. Ask my wife, she will testify to this. I'm one of these guys that kind of explodes and then I've got it out of my system and I'm okay. But there are people in life where if you do them wrong and you don't see it immediately, but they stew over it and they hold it in and then they're waiting and waiting and waiting to finally get back at you. That's kind of what's going on here. An example of this you see in 2 Samuel 13. You don't need to turn there, but this is the story of, of, of Amnon, Absalom, and Tamar. If you know the story, uh, David had many wives. He had many sons by many wives, and Amnon was one of his sons. Absalom was another one of his sons from different wives. Now, Absalom had a sister whose name was Tamar, and it was said in 2 Samuel 13 that she was very beautiful. And Amnon, the older brother, lusted after her. He wanted her so badly, he begged David, please, 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 let me have Tamar. And David's like, "Uh, whatever. And finally, Amnon concocts this bizarre little plan where he pretends to be sick and asks Tamar to come in and kind of make you know, cupcakes for him or something like that and feed him to him while he's sick. And then he takes advantage of her and he rapes her. And then after the fact, we read in 2 Samuel 13, verses 20 through 22, and her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. Now, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. King David was angry a lot, but in his later years, he didn't really do much about it. He got angry and that was it. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Absalom buried it. He buried it. And then it says in in 2 Samuel 13, 22, he says, after two full years... Absalom held this grudge for two full years. Now, Amnon's probably thinking, okay, I guess I'm in the clear now. But then what happens is Absalom concocts a plot and he, you know, he lulls Amnon into a false sense of security. And then when he's not expecting it, he kills his brother Amnon. He held on to that wrath. He held on to that anger for two full years. What's my point? Well, it's scary when human beings hold on to grudges and store up their anger and vengeance, how much scarier it is when the one storing up wrath is God, the holy and righteous judge. 
God not only sees what we do, he also knows all the secret thoughts of our hearts. He knows the sins that we commit in public, in private. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And personally, I, do, I don't want to be naked on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed against my sin. God's righteous wrath will be revealed either in the here and now or on the day of wrath, which is just another way for describing judgment day, final judgment. In either case, though, repentance is available, right? That's what Paul's trying to get at here. Repentance is available. Even for the Gentile sinner, repentance is available to get out of that downward spiral of sin and debauchery. But for the Jew, God's kindness and forbearance is not an indication that everything is honky-dory with them, but rather a sober reminder that judgment is coming and that repentance is the only way to escape it. But we'll stop here, and next week we'll pick it up, Lord willing, in verses 6, and we'll cover 6 through 16.